As it is a privilege to be here and open God's Word with you, um, looking at the story of the Samaritan woman. I can't look at this passage or think about it without thinking about Max, who was my boss at one point. He was a good preacher, he was a hard-working pastor. And in fact, we're a church where we, we worked him way too hard. And when he was really stretched for a sermon, uh, particularly if there's a baptism or there were lots of non-Christians around, he would turn to this story, the Samaritan woman, and he was passionate about it. Uh, clearly for Max, this was the best illustration he could think of, of God's unconditional acceptance that God displays toward us. Well, sadly, Max's ministry among us uh, ended painfully, and it certainly wasn't uh, all his fault. We did a very bad job as a, of a, as a church of caring for him. And the pain for Max didn't end there. There were two broken marriages, there were broken plans. And the last that I heard from my friend Max, he was in another part of our city, just working a job to support himself and his disabled son, and I heard he was really lonely. And the, the, um, the fact is that Max couldn't show his face in our church again. Uh, I would love to go and visit him, love to met with him, but what happened between us, what we did to each other was just too shameful, just too painful for everyone involved to, to revisit. My hope and prayer is that Max is still preaching this story to himself. That no matter what, who we are, no matter what we've done, God's face is still towards us. That we're still part of his plan. That the Father is still seeking us out, meeting us right where we're at. Let's pray and ask God to do that right now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to this earth uh, to give life, to give it abundantly. Thank you that this offer of life is available to us right here and right now. No matter what we've done, who we are, what we think of ourselves, your face is towards us. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son so that we could be sought out. Thank you for continuing to seek us out. And we pray today that by your spirit, you might encourage our hearts and remind us that we too can be part of your eternal plan. We too can be part of this amazing gift of life that you lavish upon us. Okay, so I'm going to start with um, that story of breakfast before. It's one of Lydia's uh, five-year-old Bible stories. Uh, it's already ancient history in Jesus' time, but I trust you'll see the connections with God's big, long, faithful story that we get to be part of right here today. Jacob had deceived his brother Esau and he's now running for his life. And alone, afraid, he lies down to sleep outside the town of Luz, uh, later known as Bethel. And uh, that night, with a rock for a pillow, he has a dream. And uh, there's a stairway to heaven. Um, famous Led Zeppelin song, you may be able to hear it coming through, or having problems with the sound there. Famous Led Zeppelin song from the 70s, some say the best rock song ever. I'm not sure if you agree. But when I was a kid, that would be a fun one. When I was a kid, I had a Bible story, a book Bible, a story Bible, with a picture just like this. And it's wrong. Or at least, it's not complete. Because the focus of the story that was read for us before from Genesis 28, the focus of the story isn't the stairway, it's the Lord who is standing above the stairway and it's what he says. 
And the Lord God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will never leave you until I have done what I promised you. And then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Surely, wow, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And then he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, Bethel, the gate of heaven. When Jacob woke up, what did he see? What did he see around him? It's a question. What had changed? What did you see around him? He saw the same view around the city of Luz that he'd gone to sleep with. So what changed in, in, in Jacob to say this? What changed was that God had met with him. God had revealed himself to Jacob in a way that would change him forever. He was still Jacob. He was still devious. He was still a broken human being. But now he knew himself to be part of something much, much bigger, something eternal. And so he woke up that morning and he shook off the dust. And he's a changed man. Maybe today you feel like dust. In the sweep of history, among billions of people on this planet, who am I? Just like a, a speck of dust, something to be thrown out, to be swept away. Except the Father is sitting himself. Let's see if this works. That's what it's saying. Okay, I'll take that water. Hook it up. 
And he said, I will. Bring your husband. And I told him, I don't have a husband. <laughs> I was about to get into my car. And then he said one last thing. He said, you're right. You have five. And the one that you have now isn't even yours. I know, right? He was completely right. Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Uh, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he came to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So in verse 4 we read that Jesus had to go through Samaria. For most Jews of Jesus' day, the mentality would be that you had to go around Samaria. There was no way any good Jew would, from Galilee would travel in the straight line between Galilee up in the north and Jerusalem down the south unless they were forced to do it. But Jesus is compelled by love. His own mission is not to avoid this, uh, this meeting. Now normally, uh, from Jerusalem, uh, when they're heading back to Galilee, a Jewish person would take the Jericho Road east, down the hill into the river to Jericho. They'd cross the Jordan River. They got the eastern side of the Jordan until they could see Mount Tabor. And they could see Mount Tabor um, they were safe to cross back to the western side of the river and they continued the way home. That was the road that everybody would take. And it's the road that Jesus himself took um, other times. Uh, this time, Jesus is walking a different road. Yeah, he had to take. He had to take. Because this was not a random meeting. Way back in eternity past, I am Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Put this day in John 4 in the calendar. This day, the eternal God said, we're going to meet this Samaritan woman. This day we're going to change her life and through her, change her village. And through the, this Bible story, who knows how many people have been changed since. This place where Jesus met the woman is a place that has history. You read back in Deuteronomy and Joshua, you'll read about Shechem, modern day Nablus. It's the back of that picture, a bit not very clear for you probably. But there's kind of like a big amphitheater there, a um, big bowl in the hills, and there's two mountains at the front, uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. If you read in the Old Testament, 
Israel was told to go up six tribes in one mountain, six tribes in the other, and call back blessings and curses about a mile apart. And because of the shape of the land, they echo um, there. Jacob's well, where Jesus at Sidon Sychar, where Jesus met the woman, is right there at the bottom of Mount Gerizim. When the lady says, our father's worship on this mountain, it's just, it's just up here, 800 yards behind her, up to her, her right. We're going to read together uh, the rest of the passage, and this is where you get to have a bit. So, if uh, you are in the front half here, you're going to be Jesus, and you're going to be reading the, um, the blue text there, right? Yes, blue text. Uh, if you're in the front half over there, you're going to be the Samaritan woman, and you're going to read the brown text. Is that clear? Okay, if you're in the back half up here, you're the disciples, and the back half over there, um, you're the, the villagers from the Samaritan village. You get a, a go later on. But, so it's Jesus and the Samaritan woman, uh, and Adam's going to be drawn in white. So let's read. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, So the Samaritans, this Samaritan woman, they are half-breeds. It's not a politically correct true, uh, term, but it's true. When the Assyrians had attacked the northern ten tribes of Israel about 700 years before, they had deliberately intermarried with the Jewish people, Hebrew people, and the ten northern tribes. So that they would no longer be fully Jewish. So they'd be tainted. And if you're reading through John's Gospel, the contrast between chapter 3 with Nicodemus and this woman is really stark. Nicodemus in chapter 3 was a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a man. She's a woman. Nicodemus was learned, educated. She was ignorant. He was upright. She is sinful. Nicodemus came from the wealthy upper class of society. She is poor and most probably basically an outcast. Nicodemus in chapter 3 before this, he came at night. This lady comes in the day. Nicodemus hid his relationship with Jesus. This lady's about to go and tell her whole village. Nicodemus recognised something about Jesus' merits and, and sought him out. And this lady, at first at least, is very indifferent to Jesus. Let's keep reading. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the world will be. Where can you get the land in the world? You are a great than our father Jacob. He has given us all, and I have put myself. I see some of you. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The other way who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty as a speaker. The water that I will give him will be without him here, so as you bring the water, well enough to eternal life. The woman said to him, Wouldn't you just switch a light off for me? Okay. 
So there's two different conversations happening here about water, isn't there? Two different types of water. Um, she's got the bucket. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is thirsty. So he's asking her for a drink. Uh, but then Jesus is offering in return a different kind of water. It's worth thinking about who's the giver and who's the, the source of the water here. And what is living water? I mean, some parts of Asia, thankfully not in Phnom Penh where we live, but some parts of Asia there's water with living things in it. That's funny things in your tummy. Um, don't think that Jesus is talking about that. There, it's got special electrolytes like in the video clip. To understand what living water is, this idea, this picture, we look back again in chapter 3. The gift of God is eternal life. And here Jesus is offering the gift of living water. And it says here, Jesus says here, if you drink of this living water, this gift of eternal life that I give you, you will never thirst again. One drink, and it satisfies forever. You never need a chopper. You never need more. What an incredible picture of this offer from Jesus. And there's more. Just think about, there's a well here in the dry land. You've got to put a bucket down. Jesus says, in this, the, the, the eternal life that I'm offering to you will well up, and I want to suggest bubble over to those around you. It's a gift that God will do in us if we receive, if we'll just ask for it and receive it. An awesome picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. But this lady's on the weight week there. She's thinking, physical water, hook it up. She's happy to take a freebie. So let's keep reading and see what happens. Jesus said to her, The woman answered him, Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. The woman said to him, Some of you will know it's like to live in a really small town. Um, my sister Bronwyn, when she was first married to a 20-year-old married Baptist pastor in Yeovil. Uh, Yeovil's a town of a thousand people and everybody knows everything. And so when mum and dad went from Inverell down to Yeovil to visit, it made the local paper, which was two sides and made four sheep. But, you know, in a town where everyone knows everything, you can't, can't hide anything. And if, if that's a nice story, like mum and dad visiting, um, it's okay. But what if your reputation isn't that good? Some of you know Ben Morgan in heaven now. Uh, he used to work with uh, teenagers and he was working with a, a young girl from a small village around here. And uh, she had a reputation and it wasn't good. They called her the town bike because everyone rode her. Now that's crude, I know. But do imagine what it's like to have that kind of reputation when everybody knows you, knows about it. That was the case, this woman. We need to remember, though, that in the culture of Jesus' day, it was the husband who did the divorcing. And so five times this woman has been used and ditched. And the current boyfriend hasn't even got the, the decency to marry her. And it's a small town. And everybody knows her history. 
And that's probably why she's here at the well at lunchtime. To avoid the looks, to avoid the comments. And we'll see in a moment an example of those looks and comments from the disciples. Well, Jesus doesn't avoid this issue. In fact, he, uh, he actually goes for it. He exposes this lady's deepest issues. He opens up a wound so that it can be healed. Now, let's be real here. We're not just talking about people out there. We're talking about you. We're certainly talking about me. We are broken people. Even maybe especially in the area of our sexuality, our, our, um, our experiences with sexual things. Uh, a couple of years ago in Phnom Penh, we live, there was a study done by two researchers, Glenn Miles and Ken Taylor. It was about the use of pornography and massage and that kind of stuff amongst Christian workers. And 40% of them answered the survey in a way that fits the criteria of sexual addiction. 40% of mission kind of workers. That's actually a normal figure for churches. We're no different to the people out there. We are all broken. At least I am, and I hope to be honest with each other. Or with God. Well, exposed and raw. This lady picks up that Jesus' knowledge of her, there's something spiritual going on here, that this guy is from God. And so, and later she'll, she'll tell the people in the village, he told me everything I ever did. All that she did was say, um, I know the marital situation. And the next question that she comes up with here, when she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people want to worship. Uh, that, that could be a distraction. It could be like, uh, you get a bit too close to the bone, let's make it impersonal. Or it could be a real question. She may be really wanting to know how to approach God. We can't really tell. This mountain, Mount Gerizim, just up the hill behind them. She says, our fathers worship here. You Jews say the right place to worship is in Jerusalem. Where is the right place to worship? And the way she's thinking, it's all about us going somewhere and doing stuff. Let's move on. Jesus said to her, So where is the right place to worship according to Jesus? It's not about a place. It's not about what we do. There's lots we can say here. But let's, let's have a look very quickly at what God does. Twice in this passage Jesus says, but the hour is coming. Uh, if you read on in, in John's Gospel, chapters 12 and 13, the night before the cross, Jesus says the hour has come. It's at the cross that Jesus, the obedient son, forever changes the way that we approach God. And he can say here, and he can say in these verses and now here, because Jesus is here. Jesus changes everything. He says worship is in spirit and in truth. And this connects us again back to chapter 3. Jesus told Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God 
unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh things, but it's Spirit that gives birth to Spirit. And here Jesus says, the Father is seeking. Led Zeppelin got it wrong in their song, Stairway to Heaven. We don't build a stairway to heaven. God the Father comes seeking us. Isn't that great truth? Well, truth, that may be our part actually, allowing truth to rule. Truth uh, in the original is literally what cannot be hidden. And the bottom line, the precondition of true worship is letting God expose the truth about ourselves. Back in chapter 3, uh, I'll read a few verses before this, very well-known verses. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Verse 19. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, literally whoever does truth, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. When we are willing to let God expose the truth of what we are, who we are on the inside, he responds by revealing, by exposing us to the truth of who he is. Let's read on. The woman said to him, Jesus said to her, I will speak to you again. We'll just stop there for a second. Uh, this Samaritan woman allowed Jesus to expose the reality of who she was. And in return, Jesus makes himself known to her. And in the original, Jesus says, Egalani, I am. That's the, the famous, the awesome name of God from the Old Testament. And I can't think of any other individual in the, in the Gospels to whom Jesus reveals himself as I am. But he does so to this woman, everyone. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, Disciples? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now we actually read that wrong, didn't we? Because the disciples didn't say, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? They, they thought it, didn't they? They were thinking it. And she very quickly, quickly picked up what was going on. Um, it's a, actually an example of what we're like. Imagine coming into a congregation sometime if you've got a history. Uh, understand what people might feel like. That was this woman that day, if we're honest. The only remedy we've got is to say, friends, we're no better than you. Maybe it's tied a bit better than uh, you can. Maybe the whole village doesn't know 
Let's keep reading. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, But he said to them, I have So the disciples said to one another, Jesus said to them, So Jesus is talking to the disciples about ministry. Just go back, let's go back to that slide. When Jesus says to the disciples, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white to harvest. When the disciples lifted up their eyes and looked around, what did they see? They saw, at the same moment, they saw a whole village of Samaritans coming out to see Jesus. He's good done. Time's coming away. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, Can you say that again? There's great words. We don't need you to tell us. We know for ourselves. This Jesus is indeed the saviour of the world. Jacob, back in the Old Testament, the Samaritan woman, these villagers, they all have one thing in common. God met with them personally where they were, as they were. And they understood themselves to be in relationship with the God who is the saviour of the world. And friends, we see that in Asia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. You hear in different ways uh, new believers saying a very similar thing. Not because you missionaries or you evangelists told us. We know for ourselves that we have a relationship with God. He answers our prayer. He encourages us, comforts us in persecution. He gives us the boldness to go and share with that next language group. We know for ourselves that this indeed is the saviour of the world. And this, friends, is keeping, God keeping his promise. We've got a promise keeping God. He said to Jacob, back there in Genesis 28, that your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad from the west to the west and the east, the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And as we take, receive Jesus' gift of eternal life, this bubbling up gift of never, always satisfying, never running out, gift of eternal life, we become part of God's plan for this world. That's the life that bubbles up and spreads around uh, to those around us. Let's have a think as we finish with one last little video from John Piper and the band.
step back from this and say, so what happened in Samaria? This is just amazing. This is absolutely, this is Samaria. These are half-breeds. Jews avoid Samaria. This is a woman, five husbands. This is a strange strategy. It's a strange evangelistic strategy. Pick a people that everybody hates. Pick a woman that people think you shouldn't talk to. Pick a morally compromised woman and get a revival. So, I think this story, at least that much of it, is in the Bible to encourage us in our very pluralistic, religiously, ethnically diverse, increasingly so, land and world, that, that God has people in Samaria. Pick your people group. God has a people. And guess what? He has a very unlikely instrument that he intends to use to reach them. What you? With your horrific background. Okay? At least that much is intended to encourage us both that there's a people out there among any people group of the hundreds in the Twin Cities and none of you is disqualified from witnessing to what she did. Lord Jesus, thank you for this uh, incredibly encouraging offer you give to us of life. Not just life, but uh, fully satisfying, overflowing life that we don't have to do anything about except say thank you. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you would take our lives and in this community and from this community for this great offer of life flow. As we think about the drought and we understand what it's like to be desperately dry, we acknowledge too, Lord Jesus, that we are desperate for your life, for your offer. So we'd ask that you renew us today, renew us this year, you work in us individually and together. That this abundance that you offer might be not just evident to ourselves, but also to those around us. For your glory we ask, Lord Jesus.